Take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to Revelation chapter 19. We are getting closer and closer to the conclusion of our study of the book of Revelation. Don't know exactly how long it's going to take us until we're done, but I do know this, that over the next several weeks and probably a few months before we actually are able to finish up, that we're going to be talking about some very powerful themes, and it's going to be a very uplifting time as we come to the period discussing the establishment of Christ's kingdom upon the earth. Now, our study in Revelation is all about Jesus Christ. All of history is moving towards this revelation of him as the Son of God receives his inheritance. And this is when Christ gathers all of his people toward to him. It's when the world of sin and sinners and Satan is done away with. It's when the curse is lifted from this earth, and then all in heaven and earth are joined together in perfect harmony in their praise and glory of Jesus Christ. And as we move towards that wonderful time, we have in this passage that we're studying a very beautiful ceremony. It's a great wedding feast that's going to take place, and this is when the bridegroom receives his bride. Now, we've already identified the bridegroom. Uh, He is the most prominent person in the wedding ceremony, And uh, although uh, our culture says that the bride is supposed to be the most important in the wedding, that is not the case in the Bible times. In Bible times, the focus was put on the bridegroom. Uh, The bride is important, and the bride that we're talking about tonight is important. She's blessed and she's privileged, but she doesn't stand out like the bridegroom. And when you know who the bridegroom is, you understand why. Because the bridegroom is Jesus. And the revelation that we have is the revelation of him. And so all attention is focused on him and what he will do. Now, our study tonight is in verses 7 through 10 of the 19th chapter. But as we did uh, last week, we're going to start reading in verse number 4 to kind of get going here and get into this. But Revelation 19, verse number 4, it says, And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready." And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In these verses, we have a description of a scene that takes place in heaven just before the second coming of Christ. Now, if you haven't been with us throughout our study, I don't want you to be confused about this because uh, when I say the second coming of Christ, I'm not talking about the rapture. Uh, The rapture at the time that we're reading here actually occurred seven years earlier. Uh, And although that is a significant event, it's a very important one, yet it's not the most important event that we find in Revelation. 
And that might seem odd to you because we focus so many times on the rapture, and that is going to be a glorious thing, but the rapture is not even mentioned in the book of Revelation. We know that it occurs. It occurs between chapters 3 and 4. But if you want details on the rapture, you have to go to another part of the New Testament, other verses, and uh, you can find it there. Now, when chapter 3 ends, the church age is over. That's the age in which we're living right now. The church age is over. And then chapter 4 begins with this glorious scene that's in heaven. And there is no reference at all to the rapture. And so in this scene that we're talking about tonight, the rapture is over. Seven years of tribulation are over. And this is just before the time that Christ comes to set up his kingdom on the earth when he brings those angelic armies and the armies of his saints and establishes that millennial kingdom upon this earth. And that is the time that's most often referred to in Scripture as the second coming. And so this is when the bridegroom takes his bride and they begin to celebrate the wedding. It's a great scene of expectation as we see in verses 4 through 7. Now, I'm going to back up just a little bit to review from last week. And we, we noticed in the last message the contract for marriage. And this may not be so familiar to us, but in Bible times, there was a contract for marriage. And that's when the parents of the bridegroom would find a suitable bride for their son, and they would arrange the, the marriage between the two long before the marriage, uh, or long before, I should say, they were able to, the two people were able to decide for themselves. And so these two families would get together, and they would make their arrangements, and when the boy and the girl had reached a suitable age, then they would be joined together in marriage. Now, at that point, they were engaged, and as far as the law was concerned, they were considered already to be married. Even though the marriage hadn't yet been consummated uh, with physical intimacy, because the children, of course, are too young for that. But nevertheless, in the eyes of the law, they were considered to be already committed to one another, and they were considered for all intents and purposes to be married. Now, that contract for marriage represents the contract that Christ made before the foundation of the world when he chose a suitable bride for his son. There was also a dowry that was involved in a marriage contract. Uh, The bridegroom's family would pay a certain sum to the family of the bride in order to obtain the rights for the marriage. And sometimes that dowry would be very expensive. That depends on the social status of the bride. And so sometimes that could be a very expensive dowry to be paid. And we showed or saw how that was, was uh, compared to the price that was paid in order to purchase the bride of Christ. Now, in this case, it was the most expensive price that was ever paid because it cost Christ his life. It cost him infinite suffering on the cross in order to purchase the redemption of his bride. Now, the very peculiar thing about that is the way that it cut across societal norms. Now, on on one hand, you have the king of glory who owns everything in the world, and yet he's chosen for himself a bride that comes from a worthless family. The bride has no pedigree other than a loathsome family of criminals. And so if you ever wanted to put together a fairy tale ending for a story, this would be it, because Prince Charming kisses a frog and makes her his bride. Now, let's look at at another aspect of marriage. The second thing that we want to talk about is the choice for the marriage. The contract of the marriage uh, for the marriage took place long before the foundation of the world, and this is actually a contract that was made between the father and son that the father would give the son a bride, 
and he would take the necessary steps in order to redeem them and to make her his own. Now, we have to be very careful about this, that we, that we don't press the analogies too far, because there are some who believe that all who are chosen are a part of the bride, and that would include all saints from all different ages, no matter what time that they lived. So whether they were in the Old Testament times or in the New Testament times, some believe that all of these people are going to be a part of the bride of Christ. Now, later I'm going to show you why that's not correct. But for now, there is a specific portion of those that are chosen who, are, who become a part of the bride of Christ. Now, all the people that are chosen to be gods, they are all going to be in heaven. And it doesn't make any difference what era that they're from. They're all going to be in heaven, but not all of them are a part of the bride of Christ. And so what about the choice? Well, the point that I want to make here is that the choice is coincidental with a contract. And folks, this is a major point of theology that separates two completely different religious systems. When was this choice made, and how was the choice made? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit. First of all, it was not by foreseen faith. Now, on one side, you have those who believe that the bride chose herself, and that is a belief in what we call foreseen faith. And that is that the Father looked down through time and he saw the ones that would choose Christ and then based upon that, he chose them. And so if you want to define it in another way, you would call that conditional election and the condition is that we would have faith and then if we would have faith, then the Father would choose us. And so the onus of belief then is put upon us and so we become the determiners of our salvation because God only chooses us because we decided to choose him. Now, I know for those of you that have been at Berean Baptist Church tonight, since I've been the pastor, that seems like a totally untenable belief. And yet that is the position that's taken by the majority of independent Baptists today. It's not what Baptists have historically believed, but that is the, the accepted viewpoint among most Baptists and also among most evangelical Christians. And not only is that the viewpoint of evangelicals, but it's also the prevailing viewpoint that you find in Roman Catholicism. Because in any any system where you have a, a works that has anything to do with salvation, there will always be this viewpoint. Now, of course, we know this, that independent Baptists do not believe in works for salvation. And that's why it it makes their belief in foreseen faith, coupled with their insistence that salvation should be by God's grace and only by God's grace, it really doesn't make sense that you can put those two things together. Now, I don't have any doubt in my mind at all that Baptists, almost all the Baptists that we come in contact with, do believe that salvation is all by the grace of God. But what they can't seem to see is that when you have man choosing himself and it's not God's choice, and when God's choice is based upon man's choice, then that actually makes faith a work. It's a, it's a good work that you and I perform, and it's not based upon any sovereign operation of God that takes, uh, takes place in our heart. And so that naturally leads a person to the belief that grace can be resisted. And if God's effectual grace in salvation can be resisted, then it's actually man who makes himself available to be saved. And it means that God's grace is not sufficient alone in order to bring that person to Christ. Because if that person does not prepare his own heart to hear the gospel of Christ and to believe it, then he can't be saved. Now, I'm sorry about this, but that can't be worked consistently with Scripture. It doesn't fit what we see here in Revelation, it doesn't fit this peculiar 
selection of the father for a bride for his son. So the bride does not choose herself. It's the father that makes the selection. So it's not by foreseen faith. But what it is, it is by eternal election. It's by the father's choice alone, which was made in eternity past. Now, since we spend so much time on that in other studies, I'm not going to deal with that point particularly and pointedly tonight. Uh, we've already done that when we studied Revelation 13, verse number 8. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it here. There are many, many scriptures that teach this doctrine. And to avoid them, uh, you have to be a mental gymnast. I mean, you have to be a Chinese contortionist to get around this. But Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And then Luke records in Acts chapter 13, verse number 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And then, of course, the verses in Romans 8, 29 and 30, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also glorified, and whom he, uh, he also justified, rather, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, if you'll turn to uh, Romans chapter 9 very quickly, I'm going to leave it here with the reading of these verses that are definitive on the subject. In fact, Paul knew that uh, he's the writer of Romans, and he knew that the natural mind would not receive this instruction, this teaching. And so he anticipated the objection against it, and so he states the doctrine nevertheless in uncertain terms. In Romans chapter 9, in verse number 9, he writes, For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children not being yet born, neither having done any good or evil, and there that would correspond to what we talk about foreseeing faith, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, here comes the objection, and the objection is still being made by those who believe in foreseen faith. In verse number 14, he says, What shall we say then? In other words, God has made this sovereign choice of Jacob over Esau, so what are we going to say to that? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Now those verses tell us that God has the right to choose, and God does choose. And he rules out anything that would be found in us. And that means also that he rules out any faith, any self-generated faith, because according to the word of God, self-generated faith in Christ is impossible. Faith is a gift from God. And if you doubt that, all you need to do is read Ephesians 2, verse number 8. So man is dead in sin. He can't have faith unless God should give it to him. And the scripture says, God has mercy on whom he wills, and it's not according to our will. So the choice of the bride is one that's made in eternity past, and it's an eter it is an eternal election that's based upon the Father's good pleasure. 
And so the bride has nothing at all to boast of. She's the one who has the criminal background. She would not choose the bridegroom. It's not as if she's just suddenly going to decide to love him. In fact, the Apostle John tells us we love him because he first loved us. And that's the consistent theme that you find in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. God has a chosen people for chosen purposes, and it's always God who chooses us first. Now, thirdly, we're going to look at the church in the marriage. Now, we've already identified the bridegroom. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. But I haven't yet clearly stated to you the identity of the bride. Now, I think you know who the bride is, but it's important for us to understand who the bride is and why she is the bride. Now, the bride, of course, is the church. I want you to turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. And here we find as clear a statement that can be made identifying the bride with the church. The Bible often uses the marriage relationship uh, between Christ and his chosen ones as a common theme in Scripture. Uh, We find references in the Old Testament to Israel as the wife of God and also in the New Testament to the church as the bride. And we're going to talk about Israel in just a moment and show you why that she can't be the bride that we talk about in Revelation chapter 19. But here we have, beginning with verse number 22, Paul's instructions to husbands and wives. Now, most particularly in the section we're reading about, it's going to be about Paul's instruction to the husband, but the whole part of the passage is about submission, and that's why he begins with wives submitting themselves to their husband. And all of this is about Christ's relationship to his church. And so in Ephesians 5, verse number 22, it says, "'Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord.'" For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth, and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So that marriage relationship between Christ and the church is very clearly delineated in these verses. The bride is the church, and it's the church that Christ is going to sanctify and to make her a sinless bride. The bride is faithful. She always remains true to her husband, and she can never be guilty of the gross sin of adultery, or that is leaving her husband and being attached to someone else. Now, that is the reason why that Israel cannot be the bride. Now, it's certainly true that God's going to restore Israel. He's going to bring her back to a place of prominence, but he's not going to make her his faithful bride. So we would see then that the bride is not guilty of fornication. Now, in the Old Testament, we have a a picture that Israel was considered to be the wife of Jehovah. In the book of Isaiah, 
And as I read this, bear in mind that Isaiah is speaking of Israel. He says, For thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith thy God. So Israel is Jehovah's wife, but she was a terribly unfaithful wife. That was graphically illustrated when God gave special instructions to the prophet Hosea. In Hosea chapter 1, verse number 2, God speaks. And it says, The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, which conceived and bare him a son. So Hosea was told to do something that would bring him terrible heartbreak. He was to marry a woman, and he would love her, but she would be unfaithful to him. Now Hosea knew that up front. He knew what God had told him to do, and yet he went ahead and he married this woman, as God said, and he loved her, and this woman gave him three children. And as you follow that story through, you find that Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea, and she left him. You know, when I think of this story, I I can't help but think of Gomer Pyle. And I get this picture in my mind that this girl must have looked like Gomer Pyle. You know, in in any case, if you're going to choose a a woman named Gomer for your wife, you're in for surprise, surprise, surprise. But uh, uh, those of you that are old as I am, you know that reference. But there's a point to this. What God was, was teaching here, he's teaching a lesson. Gomer represents Israel. And Hosea represents God. And God was married to Israel. He chose her not because she was the greatest nation on earth. He didn't choose her because she was the greatest people in number. He chose her as a wife that was scorned by the rest of the world. Now, God loved her. And God gave Israel incredible promises. And one of, the, one of those, that she would be his people and that God would give Israel a king and that there would be an everlasting kingdom Uh, which Israel would be a part of Israel, but she was unfaithful to God, and, and God loved her still, but she went after other gods. And continually, that unfaithfulness of Israel is spoken of in Scripture as being adultery and fornication. Falling into idolatry is the same thing in the Bible in the Old Testament as being called fornication and adultery. And because of that adultery, God divorced Israel. Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah chapter 3, And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away. Now there, he's not talking about physical adultery between men and women. He's talking about Israel going after other gods. He calls that adultery. He says, I put her away. I gave her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and stocks. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah hath not trusted unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly saith the Lord. Now the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah were both guilty of worshiping worshiping idols. And so what God had to do was he set Israel aside for a time. And Israel is still set aside... But there is no doubt that God still loves her. Uh, God loves Israel according to what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. Also what we read in the book of Revelation. God intends to restore Israel to the kingdom. 
But he's not going to restore Israel to being his bride. He's not going to marry her again. She will gain a position of prominence, but she will not be the bride. Well, how do we know that? Well, we know it in many ways, not the least of which what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He's writing to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11, and he says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, a woman can get married, and she can have children, and, and then she gets a divorce, and she can remarry. But what you never call her in that second marriage is a virgin. She's not a virgin. Now, it used to be in second marriages that a woman would never wear white. And that's because white was a symbol of virginity. And that's a biblical picture. That's not true anymore. I've seen many times where they do this. And white is simply pretty. It doesn't have anything to do with this anymore. So Israel can't be the wife in Revelation because she's not pure. She went after other gods, and though she is still loved by God and still is going to be restored, she's not a suitable bride for the bridegroom. The bride cannot be guilty of fornication. But instead, the bride is committed to faithfulness. This bride will not leave her husband. This bride is purified for a purpose. She is a spouse to Christ And Christ is going to take none other than those that are faithful to him. Now, we praise God for this, that it is the sustaining grace of God that keeps us faithful. Jude writes in his epistle, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Now there, he ties this all together to the only wise God, our Savior. Be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And that means, so be it, or it is true. Now the JWs don't like that verse. The Mormons don't like this, because here, Jesus, the bridegroom, is called God, our Savior. So he's able to keep us from falling and then to present us faultless as his bride. So there won't be any blemish in this bride. And when God is through sanctifying us, we're not going to fall away. We won't follow any other God but him. That's God's design. He raised up a church, and he called it particularly to be his bride. It's a bride for his son, and she's not going to be unfaithful. Well, that would certainly beg a question. Has the true church of Christ ever been unfaithful? And there are some that would have you believe that she has been. I mean, there are those that will look at the history of the church and they will assume ignorantly that Roman Catholicism is the church and that Catholicism just went into apostasy and, in fact, is still in apostasy. So in the 16th century, you had a reformation of the church that pulled the church out of its adultery and then brought it back so that it could be Christ's bride again. But that would be as false as saying that Israel could be the chaste virgin again. You can't make someone who's been involved in adultery a virgin again. Not after they've been committed adultery. That just can't happen. And so the Roman Catholic Church was born in apostasy. It never was a true church. The true churches existed before Roman Catholicism, and they were persecuted by Roman Catholicism. God brought them through that. They are alive, and they're functioning today, and they're always going to be here until Christ comes to take his church out of the world. Now, that, that puts the Reformers in a dilemma. Because they did. They tried to make a harlot a virgin again, and that can't be done. 
And so Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox, all of them were good men and they taught a great deal of truth, but they erred grossly in not joining themselves to the true church that was already there. And so what they should have done was divorce themselves completely from that system, uh, forsaken it altogether, and then become a part of the true New Testament churches that were then in existence. Now, Christ's church is still a virgin. She did not go into apostasy and leave her first love. But then that puts us into another dilemma. What about those who are members of churches and then true churches, and they become unfaithful to the Lord? Well, I, I would say this that having your name on a church roll, however good the church might be, is not a guarantee that you're a part of Christ's bride. In fact, you can be as lost as a goose and have your name on the church roll. Because you're of a, a member of a church doesn't necessarily mean that you're truly in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, as I taught in Sunday school this morning, for those of you that were there, uh, the church is visible but I don't believe that all that are in the visible church are actually a part of the church. See, uh, the church role is not what makes it so, and uh, what makes it so is that you've been truly redeemed by Christ, that you have been regenerated, that you trust him as your Savior, and you've been changed. Your allegiances have been changed. You've been regenerated and born again, and you have become a part of the visible church through your baptism. And those are people that are never going to fall away. Those are preserved by God. They persevere in the faith. And if they ever did fall away from their profession, then it only proves that their profession wasn't true in the first place. This is what John says about it. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So the true church never apostatizes, and it never will. It will always remain faithful to Christ. And that's because God promised that he would present us faultless before his throne. Now, we are the church that will be without spot and blemish, as verse number 8 in our text in Revelation says, and to her was granted that she would be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So the bride of Christ are those that are the faithful among God's true churches. They're the ones that began with Christ all the way back from uh, the time of the apostles. They continued to be with Christ. They went through all of those following ages, all through the persecution of Roman Catholicism and Protestantism alike. They have a history that's been written in a trail of blood. And that church has never left the one who loves her and the one that she loves. Now, the song that we sing says, Faith of our fathers, living still, in spite of dungeon, fire, and sword. Oh, how our hearts beat high with joy whene'er we hear that glorious word. Faith of our fathers, holy faith, we will be true to thee till death. And I think that's a song that we can sing. As Revelation chapter 17, verse number 9 says, that those that are with Christ the King are called and chosen and faithful. Now, that's all that we have time for tonight. Uh, this, this is, a, I think, a glorious study. It's a privilege for us to be able to know more about the bridegroom and the bride. I have quite a bit more to go on the subject. And I do pray that, that if you're not a part of Christ's body, I, I, everybody here just about is, but if you're not a part of Christ's body, that you would consider becoming a part of it because Scripture says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And you can't love him and not be a member of his church. 
Now, I said that membership in a church does not guarantee your salvation. It doesn't guarantee a position in the bride of Christ. But I do know this, you can't be in the bride of Christ without it. You can't stay outside of that organization that Christ says that he loves and gave himself for and be faithful and true and obedient to him. And so we must be a part of the Lord's church because that is the place that God has given to do his work in the world today. There is no question about this. As you read the New Testament, you cannot miss that the New Testament teaches the church is God's plan and program for the world that we live in today. And so the New Testament teaches that, and I firmly do believe this, that you are blessed, you are privileged above all others when you are part of the Lord's New Testament church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we spent in your word tonight. And we thank you, Lord, for the teaching that we have here on the Bride of Christ. And I do pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to you, that we would not be so presumptuous to say that we think that we are guaranteed that we are a part of your bride. And we know, Lord, that you are the ones that make it. You are the one that makes us so. You cleanse us. You sanctify us. And you're the one who helps us to remain faithful. So, Lord, help us to put that complete dependence and trust in you to sustain us and help us every single day of our lives to live for Jesus Christ. Bless as we sing tonight. We thank you again for the opportunity to be in your house this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.